Let's go to the text. Let's look at the basics of the disciples' prayer this morning. I'm glad you're here to join us in this time where we're going to look at the Lord's prayer today. Because today is Children's Sunday, and, and I know some don't want to come in here, and so they choose not to be here this Sunday, but I am so grateful that once a month, the last Sunday of the month, we come together as families to worship. And because of that, I have an interesting little child story. There was a, a, a preacher's son who was trying to learn how to whistle, and he was having a hard time learning how to whistle. And he went in on Sunday morning and interrupt his, interrupted his dad while he was getting ready to preach the message. He was, you know, putting in those last touches of the message before you get up to preach. And, and uh, his father kind of wanted him to get out quickly. So when the son came in and barged in, he said, Dad, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to whistle. Help me. He said, Son, I don't have time right now. Just ask God and he'll help you. And the little boy, satisfied, went on. During the message that morning, on a Sunday much like this one, and an inopportune time, while his dad was up speaking, he whistled extremely loud. Loud enough for everyone in the congregation to hear. And his mother did what my mother did, reached over and pinched him. I know none of the parents do that here today. But I got pinched often, as you can imagine. And so while they were on their way home, the mother began to scold their son because he whistled during the service and asked him, son, why in the world did you choose that time to whistle during the service? To which he responded very politely, but mom, dad told me to pray, and I was praying that God would help me whistle, and at just that moment, he did. You know, we must teach our children there is power in praying. And it was so cool last night to watch our eldest son with his four children down in our basement doing their devotional time together before they get ready for bed. I love that time when I watch our children teaching their children how to have faith in God and the power of prayer. There was a certain church that was having a hard time with the electricity on that morning, and they were somewhat disappointed because, you know, they had all this stuff like we have, and none of that was going to work. So they decided they would go sort of low-key, and they would have simply the acoustic and the piano that day during the worship time. However, during the praise and worship, the pastor was a little bit preoccupied because it's a large auditorium and there were some who were sort of hard of hearing, not like our church, but in his church, there were some that were hard of hearing. And he was wondering how they were going to be able to hear the message. And as to their custom, just before he got up to preach, there was always a deacon who would get up to pray. And the deacon was praying when someone handed him a note. And as he opened the note while the deacon was praying, the note simply read, after the prayer, the power will be on. You know, when you think about that, that's a great philosophy as to how the disciples should live. For how in the world are we going to have power without prayer? When you have a prayerless Christian, I'm convinced you have a powerless Christian because that believer, that disciple is not connected in an intimate love relationship as he should with the Father. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 has given this long narrative in this beautiful Sermon on the Mount as to how his disciples ought to live their lives. He talks about in Matthew 6 that the life that his disciples live, it's a matter of the heart, and the heart needs to be right with God. And as their heart becomes right with God, they are then to live a righteous life that is above the life of the Pharisee and the Sadducee or the scribe. 
And those who heard it were imagining, how in the world can we live a more righteous life than the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees? How can we make that possible? And Jesus, knowing, I think, their heart, says to them in his Sermon on the Mount, the only way that you're going to be able to rise above your own humanity is to be able to go to the Lord on a regular basis and pray and pray and pray. Prayer is the key for the power of the disciple. And he gives them what many of us know today as the Lord's Prayer. But this prayer should be defined as the disciples' prayer because Jesus, in fact, never prayed this prayer. Not one time. But he did pray similar to this, and when his disciples asked him to pray, he then taught him, I want you to pray as a disciple this way. And he gives them what I want to call the pattern of prayer. So let's take a look at the text, and let's look at the disciples' dedication to praying. There is a dedication to prayer. He says to his disciples, pray then like this. Pray then like this. Before he gives them the pattern, he says, I want you as a disciple of mine to be so dedicated to prayer that you pray. And he begins this admonition by saying pray. Pray, as we defined last week, is a verb. And as a verb, we learn that it is an imperative verb. And an imperative verb simply means that it's a command. This word prayer is a command. It is really more than just a simple request. It is a requirement from Jesus to his disciples that they become people of prayer. Disciples must be prayer warriors if they're ever going to rise above their own humanity, to rise above the world that is constantly seeking to influence and to dominate our lives, and to empower us to accomplish the purpose and the mission that God has for his church and for his people in an unredeemed world. We must be praying people. And Jesus, who prayed an awful lot as our Savior, modeled prayer. And as he modeled prayer on a daily basis, he says, I want you to pray then like this. Not only does he give us an exhortation to pray that we must pray, he says, I want you then to understand that you must experience that my disciples pray this way. There's an expectation that we pray like this. Why would he expect us to pray like this? Because he is our teacher. He is our savior. He is our Lord. And he, being the son of God, has every right then to determine and to dictate then how we pray. Well, then why can't I pray any way I want to? Well, you can. But the the most powerful prayer and the most connected prayer and the right kind of praying is the kind of praying that Jesus is about to give to his disciples here and to us today. And he wants us to pray according to this way. And so he expects us to pray like this, in this manner. To pray similar to the way that he prayed, with the regularity that he prayed, but as a disciple of Christ, there's an expectation that we follow the model prayer. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1, the disciples were so accustomed to seeing Jesus go off by himself and pray. And they were so used to seeing Jesus then lead out in prayer as He taught the disciples that one of the disciples in Luke 11, after he went off to pray, he came back and he said, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. We today must come to the Lord and we must ask of him the same thing that his disciples asked of him then. Teach us, Lord, to pray. Because the reality is I think some of us don't know how to pray. And if we know how to pray, we don't know what to pray for. Would you agree with that? What do I pray for? And then how do I pray? 
So let's look then at this dedication of prayer to then the design that God gave us as he designed for us a pattern of prayer. Now, when I was a kid in Brazil, this was quite some time ago, uh, Brazil was considered a third world country then. I had a missionary was here last week from Brazil, and he and I went and had lunch together this week. And I don't really think Brazil is considered a third world country anymore. But nevertheless, I remember as a kid, there were certain things that we couldn't purchase in the U.S. I mean, in Brazil that were in the U.S. But there were some things that you could purchase and send to the to us in Brazil. And so it was always great to have one of these care packages from people from the States. Anybody know what those are talking about? Some of you WMU ladies, do you ever send those to people? And so we used to love to get those. And every now and then inside of those care packages were what my mother loved to see were patterns for my sister, especially not for us guys, because we didn't really care for what mom (laughs) made, but there were patterns for things that she would buy that were that, that would be for Amy, uh, Amy, sorry, Amy, that would be for Cheryl to wear. And I can, I, I can still see today in their master bedroom, what they call the master bedroom, but not, not much like we have here, but in the bedroom that my parents were, my mom would take out this fabric and she would lay it out and she would put these patterns down and she would, on her hands and knees, cut out along the, the dotted lines. Anybody know what I'm talking about? How many of you wore those things that your mother made for you? How many of you wish you hadn't worn those things that your mother made for you? A pattern. She would follow the pattern because she knew that that pattern would result in something that my sister could wear. Jesus is giving us a design. He's giving us a pattern. And he says, I want you to pray. And as you pray, this is how I want you to pray. Now, let's look at the word prayer, P-R-A-Y, pray. Four things that I want to talk about, pray. How do we pray? The P stands for praise. It's important that we look at the design for prayer, that we praise the person of God. Our prayers should always start with praise. Let me say that again. Your prayers should always start with praise. Most of the time, our prayers start with our needs, our wants, our wishes, and our desires. Now, granted, there are times when you're not going to be able to go through this design of prayer because you're going to be what I call crisis praying. And sometimes you're only going to be able to have time for a sentence or maybe a word like help. You know what I'm talking about? But for the most of us, when we practice praying on a regular daily basis, your prayer should always start with praise. Notice what the design of prayer says. He says to his disciples, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Notice he starts with our There's a realization in prayer in that we must recognize and realize that he's just not mine, he's not just yours, but he's our father. But we must also recognize that it's not all about me when I pray. It's not all about me when I pray. A lot of us think as disciples that Christ gave us this incredible, wonderful thing called prayer because I am the focal attention or the the focus of praying, but prayer is not about us, it's about him. 
Let me say that again. Prayer is about him, and it should focus on him, and we should praise him. He is our father, and we should take the focus off of us and place it on him and upon others. Because throughout this verse, you see the word our mentioned a number of times. And so we must take the focus off of ourselves and place it on him and upon others. Realize that it's not just about me, but notice the relationship. The relationship is one that he is our father. The moment we placed our faith and trust in Jesus and accepted him as our personal Lord and Savior, we became intimately connected to him. We were adopted into the family through faith in the Son. We can now have the privilege to call him Abba, Father, or Daddy. Caroline is the only granddaughter left in this craziness in my house for the last two days. And this morning while we were getting ready, as I came upstairs to get ready, she's, uh, how old is Caroline, Amy? Year and a half? I'm sorry? A year old? And, and she sees me, I'm Doc, and she's like the, what does that mean? Pick me up. Now, she doesn't want to be picked up for very long. I've learned that. But she wants me to pick her up. Why? Because I'm her grandpa. I'm her grandfather. And when children, we as children, when we pray to our father, our Abba, our daddy, our father, and we raise our hands, we want to be what? Pick us up. And when he picks us up, he holds us in his arms, and it's an intimate love relationship with our father, with our Abba, with our daddy. That's how lovingly intimate he is with us. Isn't that cool? He says, our father, what a great relationship. But he says, our father in heaven. Even though there's this beautiful, intimate love relationship, there has to be in this intimacy a recognition of his sovereignty, a recognition of his authority. This in heaven isn't trying to tell us that he's distant in heaven and we're on earth to remind us of how distant we are, but it's reminding God, not God, but reminding us of the position that we have with him. He is a sovereign God who is reigning and ruling upon a throne in heaven. And when we come, as Paul said, we enter boldly into the very throne room of God where he as a sovereign Lord is reigning and ruling on a throne in heaven and everything and everyone is subject to him. He is sovereign. And because he's sovereign, he deserves our reverence because not only is he in heaven, but it says we must hallow his name. For it says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. He is holy. He is righteous. He is perfect. He is all-powerful. You know, the, the, this thing called name, name means a whole lot more then than it does to us today when Jesus gave it to his disciples. But a name represented one's characteristics, one's nature, one's actions, one's activity. And because he is who he is in his very name, he has all these wonderful attributes then when we praise him, we acknowledge him for all that he is and all that he is for us. He's Savior. He's Redeemer. He's Lord. He's King. He's patient. He's loving. He's kind. He's gentle. He's all-knowing. He's ever-present. He's gracious. He's merciful. He is, and you can go on and on and on and on. 
For when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and yet God is holy. He is exalted. And in your prayer life, you should take, as you pray, on a regular daily basis, take time before you go into anything else in your prayer. Just take some time and just lavish him with praise. Lavish him with praise. Not because God is some God that has this incredible ego up there that just wants it to be stroked, but because of who he is and because of who we are and we humble ourselves and lift him up and we highly exalt him in all of his attributes, in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, in all of his natural abilities. We just glorify him. Praise him. Well, how do I do that? Open your Bible and go to the last couple of chapters in Psalm to start off with. And and listen to the psalmist as he just lavishes praise upon God. And when you begin to look at Scripture and how Scripture lavishes praises upon God, pretty soon as you begin to quote Scriptures or you sing songs like we sang this morning, it's okay to sing to the Lord, Mike. I know how terrible you sing. But make a joyful noise, Mike, unto the Lord. Okay? We joke on Wednesday night, Mike's not going to sing a solo quite yet, but he's close. No, he's not. It's not about how you sing, but it's about what comes from the heart. As you lavish your praise upon God, when you practice prayer on a daily basis, just lavish praises upon him. It begins with praise. The R then talks about after we spend time praising him, we must then rise or rise to the level of the purposes of God. We need to raise the purposes of God. We must then, after we praise him, say, all right, Lord, I, I want your purposes to be fulfilled on the earth. For notice he says, for your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice as he talks about the purposes of God and that our prayers should, should rise to the level of the purposes of God, we must seek the purposes of God. And in this prayer, we see your kingdom come. This prayer that we're praying to God, first of all, begins with the proper understanding that it's his kingdom we are praying for, not our own. Let me say that again. It's his kingdom we are praying for, not our own. We're not building our own kingdom, Emmanuel. We're not building our own ministries, pastoral staff. We are not building our own business, businessmen. We're not building our own families for our own glory, families here represented today. We are are living for the upbuilding of the kingdom of God, and we are here as soldiers of the cross, as ministers of the gospel, solely for the purpose of investing in his kingdom, and the kingdom belongs to him, not to us. And we are here for his kingdom. And notice it says it begins with a proper understanding, but it then builds with an advancement of the gospel. Once we recognize that it's his kingdom, notice your kingdom come. We should be praying that his kingdom advances not only in us, but through us. Jesus came and he said, the kingdom of God is among you. What was he saying? I am Jesus. And I am here to initiate my kingdom. And he began to pluck then people, men and women and boys and girls who had placed their faith and trust in him as their savior. 
and commit to following him as the leader, the teacher of their lives. And they would sell out and pick up their cross and follow him. And one by one, he began to build up his kingdom in, in the hearts and the lives of those who had placed their faith and trust in him. And he began it then, and he's still doing it today. And his kingdom is not going to be accomplished or fulfilled until what we sang about this morning. He comes in all of his glory and redeems his church. And so we are constantly praying, your kingdom come. Not only your kingdom in me, because once we place our faith and trust in Christ, he builds his kingdom in us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we want his kingdom to be built in us personally, but through us corporately as we advance the gospel of Christ. He said, your kingdom come. Notice he says, your will be done. Once we begin with a proper understanding and build with the advancement of the gospel, we bend in prayer our will to his. And this is hard for some of us because, quite frankly, when we pray, we want what we want. It didn't take long for the two days that we've been Friday and Saturday with family because they came in Thursday for two days to watch children, you know, act in ways in which they want what they want. And we have a tendency to think it's only children that do that. Uh, no, we do that too, don't we, adults? I mean, we know what we want, and we want what we want, and we want it now, and we want it here. And so many times when we come to, to God in prayer, we come to God in prayer with our wants, don't we? This is what I want. This is what I will. And we ask God to give us what we will and what we want, but we must first come to the Scriptures, and we must come to the heart of God and ask God, God, what do you want done to build up your kingdom in me and through me? How would you advance the kingdom of the gospel through me in my cultural setting today? How would you build up your kingdom through me and in me today? How? Show me your will. Didn't Jesus, as we talked about a couple of Sundays ago in John chapter 5, he went about the, the, the secret of his, of his success, not really a secret, but, but the, the reason why he was so powerful and what he did is that he went around seeing what God was doing and he joined God in what God was doing rather than intervening himself and to say, you know, God, I know you're doing that, but I want you to do this. He didn't do that. He joined God in what God was doing. And before we begin to give God us this huge wish list that we have, we must say, God, show me your will. Show me your will in my life. Show, you, show me your will in my marriage. Show me your will for the lives of my children. Show me your will for my business. Show me your will for my church. And once he then reveals his will, we then join God in what God wants to do, and we pray his will be done, not our will. And if our will ever contradicts or violates or goes against the will of God, we then abdicate or we repent of that and we come to the father and say lord your will be done we saw it last week when jesus prayed when he was in the garden just before the cross and he said lord not my will be done but your will be done and as hard sometimes as god's will is because there are going to be circumstances situations and difficulties and painful moments that we must be willing to pray that his will be done as we seek his will rather than pray that our will be done I'm not sure what circumstance or situation you're in today, but you must seek his will and pray his will be done. And sometimes his will is not to remove you from the difficult circumstance or the hard situation or the whatever it is. Because Paul prayed three times for the thorn to be removed from his side, and God did not remove the thorn. He instead gave him sufficient grace to endure it. Why? Because it was God's will. It served God's purpose. It serves his intent. It served his plan. 
And so he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Notice where? On earth as it is in heaven. Our prayers should be so broad in that we are seeking to broaden the influence of God on the earth as it is in heaven. How much influence, how much recognition, how famous do you think God is in heaven? Huh? How famous do you think he is in heaven? Every knee is bowing. Every tongue is confessing. Everyone. Everyone. Is that so on earth? No. Our prayers should be about the missional activity of the gospel going forth so that he becomes more famous than anyone else on earth as he is in heaven. How much of our praying is praying for the lostness in our community, the lostness in our city, the lostness in our state, the lostness in our nation, the lostness in the world? How much of your praying is praying for friends and relatives and acquaintances who don't know Christ as their Savior? How large is your list of people who don't know the Lord? We should be praying for them. For your kingdom to come, your will be done in their life, in my life, so that you can be famous and well-known throughout them. On earth as it is in heaven. Praise. To raise. But the A stands for ask. We must ask for the provisions of God. I want you to notice point number three. Praise. Raise, now ask. Praise, raise, and ask. What do we do? We jump into the ask. Yet here it says, praise me first, then seek my will and my kingdom, and then ask. Ask for what purpose? Ask so that you might then fulfill my will and fulfill my purposes, not yours. For we must ask. We saw last week, you have not because you ask not. We don't know how the dynamics of prayer works because I believe God is a sovereign God. He's going to give us what we have need of, yet he says, I want you to pray. And in your prayer, I want you to ask because you have not, because you ask not. Don't, don't ask me how all that works. I don't know. It's kind of like the Trinity. Anybody know how to explain the Trinity? I don't know how to explain that. It's just by faith. And our prayers do initiate the activity of God, but the lack of praying also hinders the activity of God, yet God is sovereign and he still works. I don't know how that works, but I do know that he's saying that we must ask for. He says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And here he's saying, you have provisions that you, you need, provisions that are necessary in, inner, in order to accomplish and fulfill my will in your life and through your life in my kingdom. We have provisions that are needed and necessary. And so he says, give us this day. And as we look at the word give, it first of all helps me realize, as I look at this text, he says, we must admit that we have a need. Now, I know that strikes it kind of different for some of us or unusual to admit that I have a need because most of us are willing to admit we have need. But there are some of us here this morning who don't want to be weak or, or, or powerless. And we don't want to admit that there's something that we can't do independently and apart from him. Well, you can't do anything without him. You need him. And we must humble ourselves and request God and give us. We must admit that we have a need. Now, notice I said they're needs, not greeds. Okay, write that down. Needs, not greeds. For some of us are greedy, and most of what we ask are not needs. 
Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Anybody know that country song? Do you need a Mercedes Benz? Now, I need a brand new Ford pickup truck. That's what I need. I mentioned it last week. I need one just like David's. I think God wants you to give me that truck, Brother David. I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's going to lose sleep over that tonight. I know he is. He's a very sensitive kind of a guy. And the Lord says their needs, not greed. So make sure you bring your needs. But notice he says, I need you to affirm your dependence upon me and that you need to be completely dependent upon me to give you what you need. Notice the appeal. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, I know some of you are gluten-free people, but the Lord says pray for bread. Sorry, Samantha. That's my, my, my daughter-in-law over there. She's gluten-free. Pray for bread. What is he saying? Pray for the essentials of life. The essentials. The necessary things. To pray for these. To request food. To request the essentials of life. But not only to request the essentials, but he says also in your prayer, repent of sin. Repent of sin. For he says, and forgive us our debts. He says to his disciples, I want you to repent of sin when you pray on a regular basis. You need to sort of do an inventory of your life and admit that there are things that you are weak in, areas of weakness, and then because of that weakness, you have yielded to temptation, you have sinned, and because of that sin, now you're in debt to God. That word here means indebted to God. There's a debt, and that debt needs to be paid for. Now, the debt has been paid for because Christ, through the disciples' life, has already atoned for our sin, where he took upon himself our sin against God, died in our place, and therefore, in essence, we are free of condemnation. For there is now no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Yet, he says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he says, confess. And Jesus is saying, I want you as a disciple to admit that you have sinned, to ask for forgiveness, to abandon that sin, and then to affirm my grace and my mercy. And so therefore, we must habitually practice this self-evaluation, say, Lord, where is it that I have sinned against you this week, this day, this moment? I ask for your forgiveness. I abandon that sin because without abandonment, without repentance, there is no confession. There is no forgiveness. You must forsake it and then affirm the grace, the mercy, the love, and the forgiveness of the Father. For once you've confessed it, you have now been forgiven and you are now cleansed. No, don't carry any more guilt and no more shame, no more self-condemnation. Just let it go, nail it to the cross, and walk away and let Jesus die for it. And I wonder how much of your praying you take time to confess sin. But notice he says then we need to release others from their debt toward us in our praying. For he says we also have forgiven our debtors. Anybody offended you lately? Anybody said something they shouldn't have said or done something they shouldn't have done? Been rude or mean or disrespectful or whatever? Or here it's not a tit-for-tat thing where God says you're not going to be forgiven unless you forgive others. That's not what he's saying here, okay? Do not, do not ever think that because that's a works religion. And that, if you believe that, you don't know about grace and you don't know about the gospel. But what he's saying in this text is that if we've truly repented of our sin, we understand and recognize that our debt's been canceled. So because of that, then, we're going to release others from their debt toward us. 
And when we have a hard time releasing others of their debt toward us, it means that we're, we're not fully understanding of how our debt's been released from God. And some of our praying needs to be, you know what? My husband today hurt my feelings. And Lord, forgive him. And forgive me. Lord, my parents said or did something they shouldn't have done, so I forgive them. Lord, my pastor, you know how he is. And we must release others on a regular basis as disciples because guess what? We're all weak, we're all human, we're all frail, we're all going to mess up, and you're going to say something, do something that you shouldn't do. And finally, once we then ask for his provisions that are necessary to accomplish his work, we must then finally yield to the power of God. To yield to the power of God. Yes, praying is a yielding. It's a humbling act in which we are yielding to a resource outside of ourselves to enable us, to equip us, and empower us to do what we cannot do without God. I think most of the reason why people don't pray is because we think we can manage life without him. And it isn't until we get into a jam or, or some circumstance hits us or some situation comes our way that's unexpected and we didn't prepare for it and we're completely taken, you know, off kilter that, that we run to God for an emergency fix when the whole time you can't take one breath, one step, make any decision, do anything, anything without him. Sounds codependent, I know, but it's reality. Notice he said, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And lead us not into temptation, the power to persevere. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that, that God leads us into temptation, but he's saying, God, don't let us be led into temptation. Protect me. Help me persevere in my desire to live for you. I want to live a righteous, godly, upstanding life. I don't want to see the things that, I, that are out in the world. I don't want to hear the things that are out there. I don't want to think these thoughts and feel these feelings. Lord, help me. I need your help. I need your protection. I need your power to persevere because the life that I want to live for you, I can't do it on my own. Lord, help me feel the things that I need to feel. Help them be right. Help me think the things that I need to think. Help them be right. Help me hear the things that I need to hear. Help them be right. Help me see the things that I see. Help them be right because the reality is we live in a, in a troubled world, in a fallen world. I remember one Sunday years ago, I was in my first pastorate, and <laughs> I was standing up to speak, and, and uh, while I was speaking, I've already told you I have multiple thoughts in my head at the same time, so if you're moving around, I can think about you while I'm speaking too, so just want to warn you. But anyway, and I see some of you sleeping out there, so it's okay. But I'm taking mental note of that for next week. And, and as I was speaking, I looked down at my knees, and I had, my children are small back then. They must have been Amy's hands, I'm not sure, but they had stuff on them, and they, you know, they grab your, your ankles and stuff, and I looked down there, and they're just cluttered with stuff. Some of you have gone to work like that. And you didn't realize it until you looked in the mirror, and there's stuff on your shirt from the time you picked up your kid, and you didn't see it. And I realized 
I'm standing up there with stuff on my legs. I didn't feel presentable. The world we live in is a messy world. And we live in a fallen world with fallen people. And some of the world's going to rub off on us. Even with the best of intentions, we fall short of God's expectations. And we need grace. And we need to pray on a regular basis, Lord, guard my steps. Protect my eyes. Shield my mind from things I shouldn't think. Preserve a right heart in me, O God, so that I might feel the things I should feel today where I work, where I live, where I exist. To ask for the protection of God beforehand so that he can empower us to persevere. Because I, I, I tell you, Christians are dropping like flies in sin. And they're making a shambles of Christianity. Because we're making bad choices, not just people in the pew or in chairs, but pastors in the pulpit. And again, I heard of another pastor who made a huge mistake and he fell completely to, to sin. It's not just for you, it's for all of us as disciples. We must pray, God, help me persevere, help me live righteously, protect my thoughts, my feelings, my actions, my sight, my ears, protect me. For in this perseverance, there's a protection in which he says, but deliver us from evil. That word deliver means to protect me in delivering me from the enemy. Why would I need deliverance from an enemy? Because the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he will devour you, disciple. He will destroy your marriage if he can. He will come against your children and your grandchildren. He has a host of demons and people who are working to accomplish and fulfill his agenda. And it's in our homes through the internet and through television and on every aspect of the world in which we live in. And the enemy is there. And we must make sure that as we pray, we say, Lord, protect me, deliver me. It is true that through faith in Christ, we've already been delivered we're going to heaven. But in Ephesians 6, God says to the Apostle Paul, he says that we fight what? A war that's a spiritual war. The principalities. And as a result of that fallen world that we're waging battle against, he gives us what he calls spiritual armor. So that as we put on that armor, he empowers us to live a life that is in battle with the enemy for satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and he would love to devour you you're on his hit list he's got you in the bullseye i found this interesting illustration in the book pilgrim's progress by john bunyan Christiana, the hero wife, and Mercy, the young pilgrim, and the children are, gra are graphically pictured knocking on a water gate, a wicker gate, I'm sorry, on a wicker gate. They knock and they knock, but no one answers. Meanwhile, a ferocious dog comes toward the noise and begins to bark, making the children and the women very afraid. 
They simply do not know what to do. If they continue to knock, they must fear the dog. If they turn away from the gate and walk away, they fear the gatekeeper will be offended. They determine to knock again ever so passionately. Finally, they hear the noise of the gatekeeper asking, Who is there? And the dog stops barking. When we pray, the dog stops barking. For the Lord answers the prayers of his disciples. And he empowers, enables, and equips us to stand against the evil one. Without prayer, there's no power, Christ follower. So how you praying? Let's pray. This is my friend Gavin, and I know that uh, this morning uh, several of his family and friends are here to celebrate this special day with him. So if you're part of Gavin's family or friend here to celebrate, would you all stand this morning? Hey, Gavin, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your Savior? and your boss, and do you want everybody to know that you're going to follow him and do whatever he asks you to do all the time from this day forward? Yes. Because of that decision, it's my special privilege today to get to baptize you, my little brother, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism, and we're raised to walk in the newness of life. 